You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In the jungle, a pack animal would falter every few steps, tripping over sludge-covered tree trunks or sinking into a mud hole, and the men had to poke and prod and beat the miserable creatures forward. Quote, Surely an iron-bound rock-ribbed stomach is required to walk behind and drive these animals, a companion of Fawcett once wrote in his diary. Quote, I am frequently besmirched with wet clots of rotting blood and other putrid matters that drop from their sore heads that are kept in a state of constant irritation by insects. Yesterday, I probed out the maggots with a stick and filled the wounds with warm candle grease and sulfur mixed, but it is doubtful whether this will prove effective. The animals generally survive no more than a month in such conditions. Another Amazon explorer wrote, The animals themselves are pitiful sights, bleeding from great sloughing wounds, foam dripping from their mouths. They lunge and strain through this veritable hell on earth. For men and beasts alike, it is a miserable existence, though a merciful death usually terminates the careers of the latter. Fawcett finally announced that they would abandon the pack animals and proceed on foot with only a pair of dogs, which he considered the best sorts of companions, able to hunt, uncomplaining, and loyal to the bitter end. David Graham writes for The New Yorker and The New Republic, where he's also a contributing editor. His first book is The Lost City of Z, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon. Thank you for joining me, David. Oh, thanks so much for having me. David, this is a very fascinating story. It, it reminds me that there's we still really don't know this globe as well as we think we do. Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about the Amazon is it, it, the Amazon wilderness is really the virtually the size of the United States. And because so much of the wilderness is impenetrable, there are still parts of it that are unknown. Um, just in the Brazilian part of the Amazon, uh, the government there estimates that there are more than 60 tribes that remain uncontacted. And there are certainly thousands of plants and fauna that remain unclassified and medicinal herbs and things like that from uh, plants that we still don't know about. Tell us what originally drew your interest to the Amazon. Where, what planted that bug that led you yeah. to end up in a green hell? In the green hell. Well, I am the least likely explorer, and and the, for anyone who knows me, imagine me in the Amazon is almost inconceivable. But the germ of this thing began when I was doing a story for the New Yorker on the death of a leaning Conan Doyle scholar, a leaning Sherlock Holmes scholar, and in the course of that research, I came upon a reference that Fawcett. Percy Fawcett, this British explorer, had helped inspire Conan Doyle's novel, The Lost World. I had read The Lost World, and I was just kind of curious, and it was almost just a lark. I typed Fawcett's name into one of these um, historical newspaper databases, and up had come all these kind of outrageous uh, headlines. Fawcett party vanishes into unknown. Another Fawcett search party disappears. And they, these were these banner headlines across the New York Times, L.A. Times, um, and papers all around the world. And so at that point, it kind of I got I got intrigued, and I said, "Who is this person that once kind of dominated um, the the landscape and that we don't really remember anymore? Who was he? What happened to him? What is this mystery?" Uh, and then when I found out that people were trying to figure out what had happened to Fawcett, who had disappeared in the Amazon in 1925, looking for this ancient city, which he called Z, and that people then for decades would try to figure out what happened in Morfine Z. And this this went on for decades, and that 
when I was doing the search, I discovered that even in 1996, a major expedition had gone and, and they were kidnapped by a tribe and held in captivity for days. So at that point, I said, what is this mystery? What is this fascination? What is compelling people to sacrifice their lives uh, all these years? Now, you're a reporter. You've been a reporter your entire life. There's one quality that really makes you a reporter, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, my stories are very eccentric by nature, and they're very disparate in subject matter. Um, but usually, um, there is a connection to a lot of my subjects, which are is obsession. Uh, many of the characters and people I write about are obsessed, and I often, as I say in the book, always kind of think of these people as slightly different than me. That I'm, you know, that I'm interested in them because people who are obsessed are usually more interesting. They're kind of pushing themselves and doing interesting things, but. I do think when I tend to write and report on these stories, I have a proclivity towards obsession to the to the great distress of my wife and family, and I tend to lose sight of everything else. Uh, and in this case, more than in other cases, I kind of went through the rabbit, rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, you you had just brought up these headlines on this guy. Right. Um, he's somebody that I had never heard of, and I, it's so interesting that somebody so high profile back then is vanished essentially from history as well as from the face of the earth. Yeah, it's true, and um, I mean, I found it actually very disconcerting that, like, <laughs> I mean, history can just be a cruel, cruel thing. I mean, this this uh, Fawcett had really um, been a colossal titanic figure. He was kind of known as the Livingston of the Amazon, and for decades, if you had asked anyone almost in any continent, where is Fawcett buried? Uh, the mystery, evoking the mystery, they would know kind of a way if you walk down the street here, you said, where's Jimmy Hoffa buried? People would would have some recognition. And one of the reasons this was, was that um, Fawcett had, uh, when he had set out in 1925, um, Everybody had followed this adventure, and he would write these dispatches up, which were then carried out of the jungle by Indian runners, typed up on telegraph machines, and blasted around the world. So it was one of the real first kind of great modern news events that everybody followed it gripped. Then the dispatches ceased, and they vanished. And so people were just gripped and compelled by this mystery. And one of the things I wondered is why why did that happen? Why did this person eventually um, vanish? And I think a part of that was that um, he didn't actually seem to find anything that we knew of. Um, and as time went on, people believed that his search was, was, was mad, that he had really sacrificed his life, and he had brought his son with him, his oldest son with him, a man named Jack, who was only 21 at the time, and Jack's best friend. The party had three people. And that he had sacrificed his life and the life of his son and, and his son's best friend in pursuit of a mad fantasy. And so as the scientific establishment eventually kind of dismissed him, um, and as kind of what he did, these kind of great adventure kind of seemed like a relic of the past, he was kind of marginalized um, uh, from the historical landscape. And one of the things I hope to do in the book is to excavate his life, which is incredibly fascinating, and also um, show that he was maybe less mad uh, than we had always thought. His life was, he was like almost a, a born to be an explorer, and, and genetically. <laughs> yeah, he's a genetic freak. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about when he first got bit by the bug. He was, he was in, the, in the military, wasn't he? Right. He, um, he had um, uh, come from a, 
um, a wealthy family. His father had actually been very close to um, the future King King Edward of England and was close to the prince. But his father became very dissolute. Um, he was a drunk and an alcoholic. His nickname was Bull because of the bulbous uh, uh, lines around his nose from liquor and eventually lost their fortune. And so Fawcett kind of grew up with the trappings of this wealth but didn't really have it. He went to the military, uh, which made him very tough. Um, it was a, you know, he was a cadet, and in those days they really <laughs> treated the cadets harshly. And it was during this age of Victorian exploration, and Fawcett always kind of rebelled from the constraints of Victorian society, and like many explorers, was kind of drawn to this other, what else was out there. And he had, drew, he had grown up with this kind of cult to, to people like Livingston and Speak and Burton and kind of worshipped them, um, partly because they were heroes in Victorian society, but they were really able to live outside it and escape from it, and, and Fawcett longed to do that. And one of the things that interested me, which I didn't know about until I started doing the research for this story, that there was almost like a finishing school for explorers in London called the Royal Geographical Society. And they were engaged in this kind of epic project of trying to map the globe, of going into areas that were blank spaces on the map, which simply had the alluring words written on them, unexplored, and figuring out what was there. And they would take these men, and they would train them to survey, and then they would send them out and ship them off. And they had helped launch Speak and Burton. And um, they had trained Fawcett uh, to become an explorer. And they trained him not only how to survey, but they also trained him in kind of basic survival techniques. And back then it was basic was the word to underscore because I read the manuals Fawcett was given and they would say things like, okay, um, if you're bitten by a poisonous snake, take some gunpowder, pack it into the wound and ignite it. You know, if you have gangrene, just basically chop off your arm, ignite, ignite some, some, uh, the wound, and so it will helpfully uh, cauterize. So, I mean, it was very um, uh, primitive in terms of the conditions. And then um, in 1906, he was sent out to map the interior of the Amazon, which remained this la last large blank space on the globe, an area that was so unexplored that the countries of Brazil, Peru, and Bolivia didn't even know uh, where their borders were, and they needed someone to come in and try to chart that area. And Fossil was sent as a representative of the Royal Geographical Society. Let's talk a little bit uh, about the, the RGS. One of the things they equipped people with was something called a theodolite. And, and this is like, you know, uh, uh, the Victorian version of GPS. Yes, yes, yes. They had very basic uh, theodolite and sextants. Um, and basically, they would measure angles of the sun and... Um, and they would also count, they literally had to count paces when they mapped. They, what they would do is basically triangulate, and it's, even though it, it was very simple, it's, it's um, beyond my mathematical abilities. But basically they would um, take, if they could have a fixed point, they would take another point, and then they could calculate what the third point was. And they would kind of form these triangles as they marched through the jungle. And um, they would actually often have to count their paces um, in terms of distance they were covering to help them map. And, uh, and that was how they would survey. And uh, now some surveyors used to even bring chains, but in the wilderness that was very, uh, you know, that wasn't possible. You can bring a chain through the jungle. And it was also very hard often to get a reading because the jungle was so thick, and so they would have to try to find a high point uh, to do so, which wasn't always easy. But Fossil would march through thousands of square miles uh, doing this, making mathematical calculations and plotting uh, the space he was covering. And he was heading into areas that were really no expeditions went, and um, and if they did, they never came back from. Now, tell us a little bit, just let's ratchet back and, and talk a little bit about the Amazon itself. Um, it looks very green and inviting. <laughs> it, it looks kind of pretty, nice little, little forest to walk through. 
But the river and the landscape are absolutely terrifying. Yeah, they really are. Um, uh, the the jungle has um, is, is often been called a counterfeit paradise uh, by archaeologists in the in the twentieth century, and that kind of despite despite this flora and fauna um, can be extremely inimical to human life. And while many of the Amazonian tribes have been able to adapt almost ingeniously to the conditions and flourish. If you were a stranger or a trespasser coming in, um, it was deadly. I mean, quite literally. Um, uh, just to give some sense, the first Amazon expedition uh, that went into the jungle was a band of conquistadores, and there were about 4,000 men on that expedition, and some 4,000 men died. And you would die of starvation, um, which is very counterintuitive. You think of the jungle as having all these predators. How can you starve in the jungle? Um, and, and in fact, they often did. And that was because the predators are just so, after millions of years, they're just so adept at um, hiding and concealing themselves that if you come in, even if you're a world-class hunter like uh, like Fawcett, and Fawcett's a companion during many of these um, uh, expeditions was a man named Coston, who literally was a champion marksman, won many contests, uh, they would find it difficult to find any food. And so they would go weeks without eating anything. Um, and then disease was, you know, people think of the big predators as being, um, you know, snakes. People think snakes as being the scary thing in the jungle. And while they're very poisonous, can be very deadly. The real danger was the little things, the little pests, the things you could barely see, the mosquitoes. And they would transport all sorts of diseases from elephantiasis to bone crusher fever to malaria to yellow fever. And this was a day where there were no immunities against these diseases. And so Foster would take these parties in and usually half his men, if not more, uh, w would die of disease. And he would often describe, you know, in his diaries, just burying them by the side of a river with just a stick, basically, to mark their grave. I have to ask, the 4,000-person party, was that the Aguirre Wrath of God party? No, it wasn't. <laughs> that came later. Um, and, uh, yes, and and uh, no, it was uh, the Orleana expedition in 1542, and, and they had gone and they were searching uh, for El Dorado, mm -hmm. this, this, that they had heard about um, from um, the Indians, that there was this ancient civilization in the, in the, hidden in this wilderness that was so plentiful in gold uh, that they ground the metal into powder and they blew it through hollow canes upon their naked bodies until they'd be shining from the head to the foot, as Sir Walter Raleigh later uh, said. And this obviously fired uh, the greedy uh, conquistadors who then plunged into the jungle searching for it. And uh, reading the account of that early expedition is, 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 pretty, um, is pretty horrific. They, would, they ended up eating um, their shoes and leather saddles and they described going mad and crawling through the wilderness um, and that was just the, that was the first big expedition into the jungle. We'll get back to my interview with David Gran. His new book is The Lost City of Z. But first, we're going to hear him read a passage from the book. In the 19th century, as the British Empire was increasingly grappling with distant lands, several English scientists, admirals, and merchants believed that an institution was needed to create a map of the world based on observation rather than on imagination an organization that detailed both the contours of the earth and everything that lay within them. And so, in 1830, the Royal Geographical Society of London was born. According to its mission statement, the society would, quote, collect, digest, and print new interesting facts and discoveries, build a repository of the best books on geography and a complete collection of maps, assemble the most sophisticated surveying equipment, and help launch explorers on their travelers. All this was part of its mandate to chart every nook and cranny of the earth. Quote, there was not a square foot of the planet's surface to which fellows of this society should not at least try to go, a later president of the institution vowed. That is our business. That is what we are out for. 
While the society would serve as a handmaiden for the British Empire, what it was out for represented a departure from the previous age of discovery, when conquistadores like Columbus were dispatched strictly in pursuit of God, gold, and glory. In contrast, the Royal Geographical Society wanted to explore for the sake of exploration in the name of the newest god, science. Now, Fawcett had a, a, another career before he was uh, an Amazon explorer. He was a spy. Yeah. One of the things that the, the Royal Geographical Society would do, or what happened often with the Royal Geographical Society, is the government would recruit their map makers um, and surveyors to become spies. So, And they did this because it was the perfect cover. Um, you would be sent into countries ostensibly to be surveying, and you're supposed to be kind of poking around and being nosy, carrying carrying telescopes and whatnot, and you're supposed to be just kind of going to places you're not supposed to be going. <laughs> and so they would send them in, and they would use the cover, and this was very common. Uh, it was often uh, in Tibet and, and uh, during the great game that Kipling wrote about uh, where there was this great competition between the different imperial powers. And... Um, Fawcett was sent, uh, there was a version of this going on in Northern Africa at the time when Fawcett graduated from the Royal Geographic Society uh, at the very beginning of the 20th century. And so he was sent to Africa to become a spy. And uh, I read his diary uh, of his uh, accounts of his secret mission. He had a, he had a, um, a hand learning James. <laughs> <laughs> and they would keep scrolls and they would write up their notes and they would send them out on, in scrolls. This kind of uh, attitude of a spy really infected his own version of exploring. He was very, very guarded about where he was going, wasn't he? Yeah, Fawcett maintained the paranoia of a spy his whole life, and um, he was very secretive by nature, which was probably was fueled from this training. And then later in life, when he was going into the Amazon looking for this ancient civilization and was developing his theory and figuring out and trying to pinpoint it, he was extremely secretive because it was a period when there was a great competition among other Amazon explorers to try to find this ancient civilization first. And he was very paranoid that one of his rivals might beat him to his discovery. And in fact, when he was building his theory of the, of the city of Z and trying to figure out where it, where it was, he would write in his letters, he would use a code, and he would, his wife had a cipher to try to decode the coordinates of the places of where he believed he was, he was going to be going. All these notes you're talking about, all the, the sources, you yourself had to do quite a bit of sleuthing. If this, You would think we would know everything about somebody who disappeared almost 100 years ago. That's not the case. Yeah. I mean, the amazing thing about Fawcett is he helped inspire, his story helped inspire the, the novel The Lost World. There's a Tintin episode. Uh, there were graphic novels. There were short stories. Indiana Jones is sometimes said to be based on Fawcett. But the details of his life had always remained a mystery, and there had actually never been a major biography written about Fawcett. And part of that reason was he was so secretive. And the family then later guarded his papers, and people never really kind of knew what happened to his papers and were they lost, had they disappeared in the jungle, or had the family kept them secret. And one of the things when I really began this quest, it began much more as a biographical quest, which is much more suited to my character and my physical attributes. And it involved essentially going to libraries and looking at archives, uh, which, I'm, which I'm not so bad at, and... Um, eventually I'd gone to Cardiff, Wales, and I had tracked down Fawcett's granddaughter, uh, a lovely woman. Her name was Roulette. She invited me into her house. We chatted for a long time. And eventually she had said to me, do you want to find out what happened um, to my grandfather? And I said, well, sure, you know, if it's possible. And she had then led me into a back room, and there was an old chest, and she'd opened this old chest. 
And inside were all these old books, and they were crumbling and disintegrating. They were covered with dust. And I asked her what they were, and she said, those are my grandfather's secret diaries and logbooks. And she allowed me to go through them, and they really had uh, unprecedented clues. And in many ways, you know, if Fawcett Z was this ancient civilization, Fawcett was kind of my Z, and um, these were my my treasure. <laughs> it's it's really amazing that that you are able to to dig those things out because there's a whole uh, group of people called the Fawcett freaks. <laughs> yes, I, I I always try to think that I was not a Fawcett freak. When I began this project, I looked upon the Fawcett freaks with great scorn, and of course, by the end, I'm now considered a Fawcett freak. Um, and the Fawcett freaks were these people who would um, show up at the Royal Geographic Society for information about, you know, where they thought uh, Fawcett had gone, um, and then would plunge into the jungle and uh, effectively uh, commit suicide. <laughs> and the, and the uh, Royal Geographic Society uh, would refer to them as Fawcett freaks. And um, after Fawcett vanished, the mystery had such a lure, and hundreds and hundreds of people went, and countless of them died of starvation and disease, and many of them disappeared along with Fawcett, and they became known as the Fawcett freaks. And I was supposed to only be covering the Fawcett freaks, not becoming one. <laughs> <laughs> now, Fawcett... Was it was a hard guy to follow because he was really uh, he was genetically predisposed. He was an, an ideal explorer. He was highly resistant to the disease, and when he went out there, the, the people around him, as you said, were dying off like flies from flies. Yes, and, and he could take anything. Yeah, he was. Um, he was one of the more one of the most daring explorers ever ever to explore in, in the Americas, and uh, he would marched into these areas where people just didn't come back from for a host of reasons and his 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 body um was incredibly resistant to disease and it spawned even in his day great speculation you can read in the popular literature people speculating with crazy theories about why he was able to resist disease when all his men um, were dying. You know, was there something about his physiology? Was it what he ate? There was always stuff about, was he eating? Was it, you know, his various habits? One of the things Fawcett did do that we do know that really did help him survive was he adopted, after exploring in the jungle for so long, he began to adapt most of the methods that the tribes and the areas would use. And by the end, he, he quite literally would paint his face like an Indian warrior and lived in the jungle very much like an Indian warrior. And he used various of the plants for medicinal purposes and um, um, became much more accustomed to the conditions. But why uh, he wasn't felled by disease is, is, is a bit of a mystery. And it contributed to a sense in his own mind and in the mind of his wife and also in the mind of other people that he was invincible and probably in the end contributed to his death in 1925 because by then he was 57 years old. He had fought in World War One, and he probably was not the same younger explorer that he had been. Now, he also had a, a different style of exploration. He was good with the natives, wasn't there's a great scene in this book. Tell us about being the only time in history that anybody was ever saved by an accordion. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, Fawcett did something very counterintuitive. We talked a little bit about that first expedition which went in the Amazon looking for El Dorado and had some 4,000 men. And that kind of set the precedent. Expeditions would go into the Amazon, and that expedition like quite literally wore some armor, which is pretty foolish in the jungle. But there would be these armed brigades essentially marching in to, to do cope with the jungle, basically. And um, Fawcett believed in taking only very small parties, 
He would take uh, anywhere from half a dozen to a dozen men. And he also had a very strict rule, which in that time period um, went against um, the ethos of many people entering the Amazon, which was he refused to let his men fire on the Native Americans under any, any circumstances, and in fact would order his men to drop their weapons. And in one incident, uh, which his companions describe in their diary, um, they were being ambushed. And one of the reasons uh, it's important to point out that they would be ambushed in these areas is because of the bloody history of the contact, even one's friendly tribe now would ambush any trespassers coming in. So when Fossil would enter these areas, it was extremely treacherous. And they were suddenly um, being surrounded, and they were under ambush. Fawcett ordered his men to drop their weapons, and then one of them had a little accordion, which he brought out, and Fawcett ordered them to sing, and in kind of mad Victorian fashion, they sang, God Save the Queen. Fawcett then took off a handkerchief. They always wore handkerchiefs around their neck. They did that so that none of their skin would be exposed um, to the mosquitoes. Fawcett took off his wife kerchief, and began to wave it above his head as he marched into this fusillade of arrows while his men sat behind him trembling, singing, God Save the Queen. (laughs) Now, (laughs) he he wasn't alone in this quest. There were other people who were looking for for El Dorado. He called it Z. Most of them called it El Dorado. They were out there. And and there were some well-funded competitors, and and famous too, Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt had gone in. uh, He had uh, charted um, uh, the River of Doubt. He'd gone with a man named Rondon, who was a very famous uh, Brazilian explorer. And one of the things, when you read about all these guys, you kind of think of this fraternity of explorers exploring the Amazon. And it was not a fraternity at all. They were all kind of bitter rivals. And they all had titanic egos, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and all of them. And uh, they were very competitive with each other. Um, when Roosevelt first went down the River of Doubt and kind of discovered this long tributary uh, with General Rondon, a Brazilian explorer, was a great explorer. And uh, many people dismissed it. They said that it wasn't even true. And Fawcett never dismissed that it was true, but he said, um, and I can't remember the precise quote, but something like, not bad for an old man, referring to Teddy Roosevelt (laughs) in his diaries. And um, uh, one of Fawcett's chief rivals was a man named Alexander Hamilton Rice. He was a doctor. He was a man of medicine. He had gone to Harvard. Uh, He was the son of a mayor and governor of uh, Massachusetts and of the Boston area being mayor and uh, was one of the wealthiest men in America at the time. He was worth millions. Uh, he had married um, the widow of the Widener fortune, and many people may have heard of the Widener Library at Harvard, uh, which was donated um, uh, uh, in that name. And, and so he had unbelievable amounts of money, and he would fund these elaborate expeditions where they would use every new piece of high-tech gadgetry, which was just coming out. So our equivalent of the GPS or satellite imagery, he was getting the first wireless radio, and he would bring this kind of contraption into the jungle, which was very mysterious at the time, and set it up, and they would type Morse code. And and Fawcett had um, no money. His, His father had gone bankrupt, and he had used what little money he had from his pension from the military in his pursuit of Z. And so he was really, he was quite destitute uh, financially. And so you really, one of the interesting things, you had these two rivalries and the nature of their expeditions are just utterly different. You have the first really 20th century, highly modern uh, expedition, and you really have kind of the last 19th century expedition, and they were going (laughs) tête-à-tête. One of the things that's interesting that is, I think, one of the at the center of this book is this idea of environmental determinism. Mm-hmm. Could you explain what that is and why it's important to the city of Z? Sure. Um, 
environmental determinism uh, is a notion that um, uh, we are ultimately early civilizations were constrained by their geography and certain geographical limits would be placed on certain societies that they could not transcend. And in the Amazon, this was particularly true. The Arctic would be another place where it's just so cold. Um, and environmental determinants basically said that the environment shaped or dictated um, the fortunes or the evolution and the development of a society or civilization. And it was believed that certain in certain conditions, a sophisticated society just couldn't develop. And the Amazon was one of those. The conditions were seen as so brutal that uh, societies could not develop enough food to support a large population. And without enough food, uh, you can't have divisions of laborers and you can't have political hierarchies. So it was believed in the Amazon that only hunter-gatherers could survive these very small tribes and that their conditions were extremely um, pretty much miserable, the Hopsi, and it was a short, brutish, nasty existence. And um, Betty Maggers, who was perhaps the most influential archaeologist to work in the Amazon, in 1971, she had coined the region as a counterfeit paradise, and she and other scientists argues, argued that the conditions in the Amazon were so brutal and food supply was so, so short that even if a hunter-gatherer tribe could find enough food to sustain its small numbers, it couldn't let its population grow and would come up with, quote-unquote, cultural substitutes um, to purge its own members so that it would have infanticide or blood revenge uh, or it would abandon its sick or elderly in the wilderness, and that these were... Um, the only way they could survive uh, in the jungle. And this theory uh, colored and dominated um, the scientific establishment's perception of the Amazon and why, uh, for the 20th century, most people believed that Amazon was, uh, El Dorado was no more than an illusion and why they thought over time that uh, Fawcett's theory of an ancient civilization was bunk. Now, <clears throat> so Fawcett gets out there and he's finally has his last expedition. This is 1925. Tell us about mounting that expedition. Well, w once again, Fawcett um, had very little money at the time, and he had been battling the skeptics for this very reason, that um, um, people didn't think it was possible that this ancient civilization could have existed. And so he had battled the skeptics. Eventually, he was able to persuade them, and he received funding uh, from some of the most prominent scientific institutions, including the Royal Geographic Society, but very little money uh, for such an expedition. And he took with him uh, only three men, uh, two men, or three in the party, his son Jack, who was 21, and Jack's best friend, Raleigh Rimmel. Neither of them, those two, had ever been on an expedition before, but Fawcett believed they were ideal for the mission. He believed they were tough, hardy, and loyal. And loyal was very important because one of the things that plagued Amazon expeditions was that in those solitary, difficult conditions, mutiny was a problem that had plagued uh, expeditions. And so he believed they would be unlikely to mutiny on such a difficult expedition. And in 1925, they set out. Um, they moved, they started in Rio, and then they went to Sao Paulo. They took a train to the frontier, uh, to Corumbá, which was kind of the last outpost. Then they went by boat upriver. Uh, they went to Cuiabá, which was the uh, capital of Mato Grosso. Mato Grosso uh, is a state uh, in, um, in, the, in Brazil, and its name literally means dense forest. And from Cuiabá, they then began their trek northward into the jungle and into the Xingu region. But again, Foss was very secretive precisely where he was going, but we knew that as basically the region he was, he was heading. And he would write these dispatches up and describing the journey 
and these would be carried out by uh, Indian runners and then typed up. So people were actually able to follow these expeditions as it moved deeper into the jungle. And for five months, um, the outside world received uh, these dispatches, and then the dispatches suddenly ceased. Now, a lot of people went in after him. Most of them did not come back. But his wife believed to the end, and there were reports to the end that he was alive. Yeah. I mean, one of the things with Fawcett was he had been so indestructible. He had essentially lived in the jungle for nearly two decades. Uh, he, you know, he, he was really, uh, I mean, in, in his own term, he would always say, you know, he would use the term going native, and he essentially got native. He, he, even when he was back in England, he would string a hammock up in his house rather than sleep in a bed. And he had lived in the jungle for so long, had withstood its conditions. He was really considered um, the greatest expert and, 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 and was seen as indestructible. So it was unfathomable uh, to his wife and to so many people that such a man could have suddenly disappeared and suddenly been felled after surviving for so long. And for years and years, there would be search parties that would go in. Now, Fawcett had warned um, before he went in that no one should follow him because of the danger. And in fact, the Royal Geographic Society said if Fawcett can't make it, nobody can. Um, but the lure and the seduction was too great, and hundreds of adventurers and scientists like, began to plunge into the wilderness, and they died, as Fawcett had feared, of disease and starvation, um, and many of them uh, disappeared just like Fawcett. And there were always rumors that would surface. Was he alive? There was rumors that Jack had fathered a child, that Jack the son had fathered a child in the wilderness, and um, legend and lore evolved. Um, one writer said that enough um, uh, um, legend and folklore had developed around the Fawcett case to form its own branch like that of the giant squid. <laughs> <laughs> now, even in 1996, you talked about the 1996 expedition. That was only 10 years ahead of your own. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the amazing thing to me was that these expeditions and this fascination with the mystery continued and that it wasn't simply an historical story, that it really was, it still had this contemporary element. And in 1996, a Brazilian financier and adventurer, a very competent uh, adventurer who had gone on many treks uh, up to find help find the source of the uh, Amazon River, uh, went into the jungle with a well-funded party and brought his son with him. And one of the themes in the book is the strange thing of fathers and sons uh, heading into the wilderness. Um, and took his son with him, and they were ultimately kidnapped uh, by a tribe in the region. They were held uh, in captivity for many days and then did eventually escape. We'll get back to my interview with David Gran. His new book is The Lost City of Z. But first, we're going to hear him read a passage from the book. Fawcett didn't want to be late. It was February 4, 1900, and all he had to do was get from his hotel in Red Hill, Surrey, to Number 1 Savile Road, in the Mayfair district of London. But nothing in the city moved, or more accurately, everything seemed to be moving. Billboard men, butcher boys, clerks, horse-drawn omnibuses, and that strange beast which was invading the streets, scaring the horses and pedestrians, breaking down on every curb, the automobile. The law had originally required drivers to proceed at no more than two miles per hour, with a footman walking ahead waving a red flag. But in 1896, the speed limit had been raised to 14 miles per hour. And everywhere Fawcett turned, the new and the old seemed to be at war. Electric lights scattered on the fancier granite streets and gas lamps lodged on most cobblestone corners glowing in the fog. 
the tube bolting through the earth like one of Edward Fawcett's science fiction inventions, and bicycles, only a few years ago the smartest thing on the footpaths, and now already fusty. Even the smell seemed at odds, the traditional stench of horse dung and the newer whiff of petrol. It was as if Fawcett were glimpsing the past and the future at once. You've talked to these people who have gone there. You've studied everything. You know how dangerous it is. Um, by your own admission, you're quite at home in a research library, <laughs> maybe less so in, in the Amazon jungle. How did you, when did you take that step? When did you say, I'm not just going to study that rabbit hole. I, I'm <laughs> going to go down it. Yeah. Describe yourself then. Yeah, I mean, I, I pause because I always want to have a really good rational answer to this question because my wife asked me <laughs> and and I don't have a perfectly rational explanation because I do think there is an element to obsession and the pursuit of knowledge or the pursuit of whatever it is that when it gets into you has an irrational element and can consume you and in this story it consumed many people including Fawcett. In my case I really did begin the story biographically and in fact I didn't ever imagine I would go into the jungle. I thought okay I have this historical story and I have this 1996 expedition. I can tell that story and then fold in the past and I'll be safe. <laughs> and um, But I began to do more research and got more and more interested. And then when I went to England and I met uh, Fawcett's granddaughter and she showed me these diaries, one of the things I discovered in reading those diaries were Fawcett had been very secretive and the only um, coordinates that he had really released to the public for where he had gone was a camp he called Dead Horse Camp. It was a place where he had shot his pack animal. And most expeditions had all relied on those coordinates in terms of where to go in the jungle uh, to base their route on either searching for evidence of his party or for searching for evidence of Z. And when I was looking through these diaries, I came across uh, in Fawcett's 1921 log um, reference to Dead Horse Camp. And the camp was actually, he had gone on an earlier um, exp expedition trying to kind of base his route before he made his major 1925 expedition. And I saw the words Dead Horse Camp. And then I looked at the coordinates. And then I compared those coordinates to the ones he had released publicly. And they were significantly different. And it was at that moment, and the granddaughter confirmed, that I realized that Fawcett had released those other coordinates as a ruse to throw his rivals off the path. And this pretty much astounded me because it meant not only had people gone in the wrong direction, it meant they had gone often fatally in the wrong direction. And so suddenly I was sitting on this information, and I kind of thought, well, they've all gone that way. What if I go the way he really <laughs> went? And uh, curiosity uh, got the better of me. <laughs> How did you prepare for this expedition? Well... Uh, there wasn't much I could overcome uh, in terms of my, uh, unless I had a year of training to overcome my, my physical deficiencies. Um, uh, I perhaps once in another lifetime was better in shape, but um, um, between work and family, I wasn't very in shape. I tried to do a little bit of, of exercise. I went to a modern camping store, and it was kind of funny, too, because I had read Fawcett's manuals for his training, and then I was there, and they're giving me GPS and astronaut food. And I, I've never even camped. I mean, I don't camp. I don't hike. I don't try, I do not do any of this stuff. And I also have keratoconus, which um, makes me um, – it's a degenerative eye condition, and I'm 
I don't want to say I'm blind at night, but I'm, 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 I, I can't see very well. So, um, but I went to the store and I gathered up all my supplies. And the good thing was I was really primarily focused on my object that I didn't think too much about the mechanics of this whole thing. And that was probably uh, 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 for the best because had I thought about the mechanics, I never would have done it. Or maybe that would have been better. I don't know. <laughs> well, once you got to the Amazon, you, you had to find somebody to to take you, didn't you? Yeah, that wasn't the easiest prospect in the world. I would call people up in uh, Brazil, and in Brazil, uh, many of them had heard, still heard of Fawcett, and um, I'd say, or they heard vaguely, and they'd say, well, he's that one who disappeared, right, looking for El Dorado. I said, yeah, that's the one, and, he said, and, I, and I would explain, I want to try to follow the trail into the wilderness, and there would be a long pause, and they would all say, Muito ocupado, which seemed to be a very polite way of saying to me, uh, "You're out of your, mind. <laughs> you're out of your mind." Uh, and so it wasn't easy to find a guide. I did eventually find a guide, a lovely man named uh, Paolo Pinochet, who was a professional samba dancer. Um, but the good thing about Paolo was he had uh, once worked for um, Funai, which is a government agency to help protect indigenous populations um, in the Amazon. And Fawcett disappeared in the Jingu region of the Amazon, which is in the southern basin of the Amazon. And that's an area which is under uh, indigenous control. It's it's about the size, along with an, an adjoining area, about the size of uh, Belgium. It's one of the largest swaths of territory on the planet under indigenous control. And again, because of this bloody history of the contact, um, these uh, uh, tribal areas defend their territory fiercely uh, and often with good reason. And so you can't just wander onto, your, onto their territory. And so with Paolo... Um, we could try to make contact with the tribes so that we could get permission to enter uh, their area. That was one of the problems that had befallen that 1996 expedition when it wandered onto territories. So I wanted to go in very low-key, a very small expedition, and as Fawcett did, and hopefully make contact with the various tribal councils uh, so I could get a passageway onto their terrain. Describe to me uh, the the feeling you get when you first were found yourself out of civilization and confronted with the jungle. Where were you, and and what? Yeah, well, one of the interesting things was it took longer to get to the wilderness wilderness area than it did for Fawcett. I had Fawcett's letters with me, and I followed his path precisely, uh, and stayed in the same place as he stayed. I wanted to see how the world had changed, and I wanted to be able to understand what he had seen as much as possible. And early in the uh, expedition. I was reading Fawcett's letters, and he was describing from his 1925 trip hacking through dense wilderness. Um, the conditions were so tough that uh, Raleigh Rymel, that was the third companion, uh, Jack Fawcett's uh, best friend, was already jaundiced and and uh, and, and had a swollen foot from um, bites and was sick. And the, and the jungle was so dense that at one point they even got separated. Fawcett got separated from the kids. And I'm looking out at this area, and it literally looks like Nebraska. There's not a single tree because they had all been deforested and uh, for, for soybean farms, and I was pretty shocked by that. And, and so it, the territory early in the stage where it would take five, Fawcett five weeks of hacking through jungle, I made that journey in two days. Um, but once we started to enter the Jingu region, um, the area that's under tribal control, um, there the wilderness is preserved and is really no different than it was uh, in Fawcett's uh, day. And there you really get a sense of what he did encounter, and you're moving through um, very dense forest, um, lianas, creepers, um, howler monkeys. And one of the things that surprises you or doesn't surprise you, people ask you, were you kind of let down or were you shocked? But there's a certain monotony uh, t to the wilderness uh, because 
you kind of march and you hack, and it's always kind of the same. I mean, unless you have a, a you're trained as a, a biologist, you know, you can't recognize all the different plants, and so there's just a there's just a greenness and a sameness to it, and 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 a certain uh, just toughness to it and a tenacity to it. And it was hard for me to imagine Foster would go on these expeditions um, often for a year or two years at a time. And it was just unfathomable for me to imagine him just hacking through wilderness. The other thing about Fawcett, most Amazon expeditions, not only do they take large parties, but they always travel by river. And they always travel by river because, A, it was a lot easier. It was a lot easier. You could have boats. Second of all, you could bring lots of food. And third of all, it was a lot easier to flee. And Fawcett um, would actually cut straight through the through the jungle, just hacking through the wilderness. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't use the rivers, and and um, I just you know, it's almost mind-boggling. You were in that forest, and you yourself managed to get lost, didn't you? I did. That was definitely the low point. There were high points and there were low points, uh, and I uh, getting lost was definitely the low point. Um, I had gotten separated from Palo. We were we were pushing towards an area near the Kikuru settlement, which is a, a Kikuru tribe uh, in the Jingu area. And based on my uh, mapping and Fawcett's map, it was closer to where he believed uh, the city of Z would be. And we decided to push there, but we had too much equipment and the settlement was inland. And so Paolo said he would go ahead and try to get help and come back. And I waited and waited and no help came. So eventually I set out myself. And one of the things that quickly happens is you kind of start off and you think there's a path, but then the path disappears. And Probably that's because of flooding in the area and rains, and, and slowly I was in a mangrove jungle, and um, and before I knew it, I was just kind of doing circles uh, and and uh, couldn't find my way out. Did, did you fear for your life at that point? I felt I was mad in a way. I was mad at myself for being so stupid, <laughs> and um, and I, I, at that point, I had been so obsessed with Fawcett and had kind of done this mad thing that just is so unlike me and so um, nuts. <laughs> and and I, I really, I cursed Fawcett. I really began to curse him in the forest um, because I was scared. I was genuinely scared and I began to curse him. And I was cursing him for me and I was cursing him for Raleigh and I was cursing him for his son and cursing him for all these other people who had led on this, on this journey. Um, and... Uh, so I was, I was scared. I mean, I, you know, I'm not suited for the jungle. And even if you are, to be lost in that wilderness, um, you're not going to—I I couldn't get out unless someone uh, basically came to save me. You, you did get out. You, you, you came and you met an amazing man who has a— really peculiar theory. Um, like, like Fawcett, he believes that there's, that civilization, great civilizations might have existed in the jungle. Tell us about uh, Michael Hecklenberger. Yeah, um, Michael Hecklenberger is a, a very acclaimed archaeologist, and he had um, spent um, more than a decade doing research in this area. And when I got to the Kikuru area, he was there, and he'd been, he lived there. He lived there for so, so long, he'd been literally adopted by the chief Afukaka of the tribe, had his own little home that they had built for him, and they had built these very beautiful uh, thatched houses that look almost like overturned um, hulls of ships, and, and they had built one even for him. And um, 
he he had been very fascinated by Fawcett. He he had even conducted his own inquiry. He told me into Fawcett's fate, and he said that even though Fawcett was an amateur, he had understood things in many ways um, better than many of the professionals. And he led me uh, to an area into the wilderness, where there was a looked like an excavated um, big wide ditch that he had excavated, and he said it was a moat. And he'd used carbon dating to date it to about 1200 uh, A.D. And I said, well, why is there a moat? And he kind of showed me around where it was in the wilderness. And the moat went for about a, uh, a mile uh, in diameter. And he said it had surrounded an ancient settlement. And he had found uh, evidence of 20 pre-Columbian settlements that using carbon dating, he had dated anywhere from uh, 800, uh, that had been occupied anywhere from about 800 A.D., uh, to about 1600 A.D., uh, and these ancient settlements had causeways and roads and bridges and roads built at right angles, all these things that Fawcett had actually always claimed and written about and said he had picked up in tribal legends or found evidence of, and um, it, was, it, was, it was pretty mind-blowing. When, when you met Mr. Hecklenberger, how, how did you feel about your your decision to go to do this from and and, and there's this is a two part decision from the first part you must have been looked back from the first time you said well, who's this guy that inspired the lost world and then mm-hmm. there's the other decision well I think I'm going to go to the Amazon <laughs> yeah I mean it, I, of all the things I'd ever done and and they were going back a little bit to that moment when I was lost I had never kind of rolled the dice I mean I'm a reporter and or and you know even when you report you don't know things. But you kind of know what you may find or what's out there, and you're like, okay, well, I've got to get that person to talk. But you know the person exists, and you need to, you know, or if you're working on a crime case, you want to get the files at the courthouse. And you kind of, there's a parameters that you're dealing with. You don't know exactly what you get, but you'll have some concept. Um, and with this story, you know, when I started out, and I really didn't know what I would find. And... Um, there's that kind of utter moment of panic when you're kind of on this crazy track through the wilderness and you're chasing a mirage. You know, you're chasing a mirage, you chased a mirage, and you're kind of wondering, what are you going to find? And so um, there were several discoveries that w- really were astonishing and somewhat miraculous. And, uh, and, and one, one had, some had to do with Fawcett's fate, and then the other ones had to do with um, this possibility of... Um, Really, the jungle really had contained ancient ruins um, and pre-Columbian civilizations. And uh, in the very region where Fawcett believed he would find the City of Z. I've been speaking with David Gran. His new book is The Lost City of Z, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon. Thank you for joining me, David. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.